0: Friends, it's my privilege today to introduce to you our guest preacher, Tim Hartman, uh, whom you have met before. I believe he is the poster child of the Honor Academy. Uh, Only you can be on the the face of the Honor Academy. That's why so many people are signing up for it. I am absolutely, well, anyway. um, Just a a couple of professional credentials with a a bachelor's from Stanford, a master's, MDF from Princeton, uh, a master's from UVA and a PhD from UVA. You have also served churches in California with your wife. Uh, You were the organizing pastor of a church, served churches from 2000 to 2009. Since 2014, you have been uh, the professor of theology at Columbia Theological Seminary, which is my alma mater, where Mm -hmm. I got a couple of masters. But the fun stuff begins to trickle out. He uh, has served communion to Desmond Tutu, which uh, not many of us in this room, I think there's one person who can lay claim to that. Uh, he is a patient of Steve Ray, uh, as if Steve has put most of the pastor of this church together at one time or another, you said you wouldn't be standing here. I were wouldn't it, not be for unable him. to stand without him. Um, the, the neat thing is that he is the two-time championship coach of Boys Rec League, and he has the opportunity to 3 this week. It's Super Hooper Week. No pressure. None whatsoever. Married Mm -hmm. to Sarah Nell, who is also a Presbyterian pastor, and dad to Simeon, Eliana, and Jeremiah. Mm -hmm. Welcome, Tim, to Peachtree, would you?
1: Thank you, Chuck. So I am thrilled to be with you all this morning. And it really has been an honor to be teaching at the Honor Academy this fall and again this winter. And so it's been good to get to meet many of you and to see some familiar faces here this morning. So I do bring greetings today from Columbia Seminary and our new president, Victor Oloyo. Victor started in August and has brought a vision of grace and abundance to Columbia Seminary, where we seek to train resilient and imaginative leaders for the church and the world. So I wanted to make sure to greet you on behalf of him this morning. So I don't know how many of you are on Instagram But on Instagram, you can tag things. So I'm wondering if you have any guess, how many posts on Instagram are given the hashtag blessed? It's 145 million. 145 million posts on Instagram with the hashtag blessed. So I asked the Zacchaeus fellows who are all on Instagram to give us an idea of what some typical posts. So let's take a look at them. We've got this gentleman posing with his car. Hashtag blessed. You have the perfect family photo with the rainbow. Hashtag blessed. You've got a big house in ATV. Hashtag blessed. Just won the championship. Got the championship belt on. Hashtag blessed. Successfully making sourdough bread. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. And if you go to Amazon, you put in blessed. This is the first thing that comes up. It's a plant protein for making smoothies, hashtag blessed. So our, oftentimes it seems to me like hashtag blessed should really be replaced by hashtag bragging, that that would seem to be a more accurate uh, description of some of these. And our scripture reading today is addressed to people very much not feeling hashtag blessed, addressed to the poor, the vulnerable, and those in the margins of society. In Matthew 5, we get what we're calling is the new teaching. This is the first teaching in Matthew's gospel. It begins a three-chapter-long speech, known as the Sermon on the Mount, that parallels the speech that Moses gave in the fifth, fifth book of the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. Listen now to the word of God. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, On my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you this is the word of the lord thanks be to god so this passage is commonly referred to as the beatitudes so what is a beatitude well a beatitude is a common form a literary form in ancient greek literature plato aristotle Epicurus all used beatitudes and they were usually employed to praise someone for their earthly goods or values. Parents were extolled for fine children. The bridegroom was praised for winning an excellent bride. The bachelor was also lauded for remaining unmarried. The wealthy were praised for their possessions that gave them a good position in this life. The righteous person was extolled for the outer and inner advantages conferred by piety. Each of these sayings drew positive attention to someone's circumstances as if to say look how well that person's life is going surely they are hashtag blessed you see this ancient usage and our contemporary understanding they're not that different so typically beatitudes highlight a situation that is desirable Jesus however took a different approach and this is his new teaching Jesus used a common form, that is, a list of beatitudes, to challenge one of the great enemies of the gospel, to challenge the idea that the winners of the world have God and God's blessings. The biblical scholar Dale Bruner puts it this way, God helps those who cannot help themselves. These are the need beatitudes, the first four beatitudes that engages deeply with God. And God helps those who try to help others. These are the help Beatitudes, the next three Beatitudes that help us engage deeply with people. But God does not, in any Beatitude, help those who think they can help themselves an often ungodly and antisocial conception. The Beatitudes do not teach us the unbiblical myth that God helps those who help themselves. The Beatitudes are not commands or to-do lists. We're not supposed to go out there and try to be meek or to try to seek persecution. Instead, the Beatitudes are assertions, really statements of fact. In his Beatitudes, Jesus tells his disciples who they are before telling them what to do. And as Jesus challenges the common perceptions about blessings, he performs two significant and surprising inversions in this passage. The first is the recipient of the Beatitudes, which asks the question, and Jesus answers it, who is blessed? So instead of highlighting human lives that are going well or are successful, Jesus moves towards the lowly, the downtrodden, the crowd in front of them. They have nothing. They've achieved nothing. Instead of seeking more influential followers, Jesus blesses those with qualities few would desire. In present-day terms, this would be something like Jesus saying, blessed are the unemployed, blessed are the fat, blessed are the mentally ill. Jesus is describing blessings for things we don't immediately think of as blessings. Being poor, in mourning, meek, hungry, thirsty, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted, insulted, gossiped about. Jesus is focused on the crowd in front of him, not some idealized, airbrushed version of humanity. Jesus is describing a God who draws near to people, people who need help, simply because they need help. Jesus does not offer to change anyone's circumstances. Instead, he offers himself. He calls the crowd to him and offers the blessing of his presence. In his book, God of the Oppressed, the late African American theologian James Crohn describes God's preferential treatment of the poor and vulnerable this way. Cone writes Jesus' life was a historical demonstration that the God of Israel wills salvation for the weak and the helpless. God hates injustice and will not tolerate the humiliation of the outcasts. Jesus Beatitudes are not rewards or incentives. God's help is not given because anyone meets some set of spiritual preconditions. We cannot earn God's favor or God's blessings. Blessings give us something we don't already have and can't acquire. Things like the kingdom of heaven, comfort, inheritance, righteousness, joy, and gladness. So the first surprise in Jesus' Beatitudes in this new teaching is who is blessed. It's the social outsiders who are blessed, not the religious insiders. The message of the Beatitudes is that anyone can be blessed in the kingdom of God. The second inversion is who the subject is of the Beatitudes. Who blesses? In ancient or modern times, the subject of the Beatitudes was also the recipient of the blessing. The bridegroom is praised for marrying his beautiful wife. The parents who captured the perfect family photo. But in a dramatic reversal, in Jesus' Beatitudes, the acting subject of the blessing is God. God and God alone is the one who bestows blessings. God blesses. God is the gift giver. God is more interested in us having, in being open, receiving, and living into the gifts given to us than in our attempts to offer something in return. So we cannot strategize or better position ourselves for God's blessing. This is not the point of Jesus' Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Jesus is not giving some kind of how to lesson on how to acquire God's blessings. Instead, what Jesus is saying to this ragtag group of uninfluential people in the crowd listening to him that day is that they are blessed. They are the blessed ones. God has blessed them in their downtroddenness, not because anything they have done or anything they have achieved. So to state the obvious, as I look out here at Peachtree Church, what I see is closer to those images of hashtag blessed than to the people who gathered to listen to Jesus that day in the Sermon on the Mount. And friends, the good news of the gospel, as proclaimed in Matthew 5, is that God has already chosen to bless you and that God wants you to experience blessings in abundance. And Matthew 5 brings us both a comfort and a challenge. First, the comfort. If you are sitting here today and you don't feel like those Instagram images, you don't feel hashtag blessed, you're not to worry that you're somehow missing out on Jesus' blessing. God blesses the outcasts, not the privileged. And if you are feeling hashtag blessed, you might want to check your motivations and your understanding of that blessing. So I'm going to tell you the story of Kate Bowler. At age 35, Kate had her dream job as a professor of American Religious History at Duke Divinity School. She would published a book with Oxford University Press called Blessed, which offered the first history of the American health and wealth prosperity gospel. And she and her husband had a young son. She had plenty of everyday challenges, a fussy toddler, whiny students, too many emails and the like. But you could say that her life was blessed until she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer and suddenly her life felt extraordinary for all the wrong reasons. A neighbor came to her door, offering some food, and when her husband answered, the neighbor said, you know, everything happens for a reason. To which he replied, oh, really? Can you tell me what that reason is? Can you tell me the reason that my wife is lying upstairs dying? To make a long story short, Kate Bowler did not die. After chemotherapy, her cancer went into remission, and she's followed up with a number of books, starting with Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. (laughs) She followed that one up with No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear. So in response to the many people who tried to comfort her and her family with lies, myths, and platitudes, Bowler offers an account of her faith in a God whose gifts are not rewards, and an account of human life that does not cause the suffering that we experience. Kate Bowler did not deserve cancer, and she did not cause it. God was not punishing her with cancer, nor was God giving her cancer to teach her a lesson. Certainly, she learned from the experience, but what she learned was about God's presence with her while she was hurting. And about how she was not as special as she thought she was. What she learned about was being human. What she learned is that God does not ask us to try to hide who we are or to seek to fill our lives with things to mask our deficiencies. Rather, God asks us to humbly approach the throne of grace and receive the blessings that God offers. And that is good enough. And that is the comfort of the Beatitudes. Now then, the challenge. And the challenge, especially for anyone here who's an achiever, like Kate Bowler or myself, who accumulates academic degrees, Chuck listed off mine, or professional credentials, or coveted social invitations, or increased stock portfolios. The challenge is that Jesus' message in his Beatitudes is that these accomplishments neither make us blessed nor has God given them to us as blessings. In fact, our obsession with achievement can endanger our spiritual health. Some of us believe that we deserve anything and everything. Our lives have been characterized by achievement and the rewards for those achievements. And yet many of those rewards come from social factors rather than from our own actions. That's a false view of ourselves and a false understanding of God's actions in the worlds. Grace is a gift to us that we do not deserve. The work here is to understand that in the eyes of God, you, the person, are worth more than anything you can achieve. When I was a student at Princeton Seminary, along with Rich and Kelly Conwisher, I had a professor named James Loder, and he puts it this way. When, word, when work and worth are confused, as they are in an achievement-oriented society like ours, achievement becomes addictive because it's trying to solve a problem it was not originally designed to solve. The problem is that the achievement addiction tries to answer the question, who am I, by filling in achievements, making our worth dependent on our work and accomplishments. This does not mean that achievements are irrelevant, but they are relevant primarily and ultimately only to what God is doing in the world to conform us more and more to be like Jesus. So Loder continues and says that the appropriate theological critique is not designed to take achievement out of life, but to take the obsession out of achievement. Because the tragedy that becomes that if we're seeking to define ourselves based upon our achievements that we cannot love we cannot give and receive the love that others have for us and that God has for us because all we're seeking to do is do more and more and more and more we can receive God's blessings by receiving God's presence we're invited into postures of receiving rather than postures of achieving and one way to do that is through spiritual practices such as silence and stillness and solitude. By being quiet, by stopping moving, by being alone, we can open ourselves up to listen and to hear what God is saying to us and to receive the blessings that God has to offer us. It's possible for us to do that on our own. It's possible for us to work with a spiritual director who together with you can listen to the ways that God is moving and at work in your life. And here at Peachtree, you also have the opportunity to join a spiritual formation cohort where over a number of months, you can engage the ancient practices of the church to seek to listen to God and to hear God's blessings. Cody Jensen and Jennifer Baca are coordinating this. And I encourage you to go to peachtreechurch.com slash cohort to sign up to learn more. I'm going to read to you a quote from a current participant in the Spiritual Formation Cohort. The Spiritual Formation Cohort has been transformative, carrying me to a new level of spiritual growth with very familiar Christian practices. It delights me that the relevance of the ancient practices of our church are being revived. I believe they are so very needed in our culture today. So I encourage you to check out one of those spiritual formation cohorts. Those spiritual practices are the first way to receive those blessings that God offers. A second way is to focus outside ourselves by being in proximity to those who are blessed in the Beatitudes. I'm going to continue now with our scripture reading from today. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Salt does not exist for itself. Light does not exist for itself. As followers of Jesus, we are not blessed for our own sakes. Salt doesn't try to be salty. Light doesn't try to shine. They don't put any effort into achieving these results. Their characteristics are inherent to their identity. But you know to see light, it can't be covered up like under a bushel, as the text says. For salt to be useful, it needs to be mixed up into, the, into food. Even if salt is a centimeter away from food, it does no good. In a similar way, we must get proximate to suffering to understand the nuanced experiences of those who suffer in our world and who experience inequality. I'm gonna show you a one-minute video from Brian Stevenson who's the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, who does a wonderful job explaining proximity.
2: We've got to find ways to get proximate to the poor and the vulnerable. I absolutely believe that when we isolate ourselves, when we allow ourselves to be shielded and disconnected from those who are vulnerable and disfavored, we sustain and contribute to these problems. I am persuaded that in proximity, there is something we can learn about how we change the world, how we change the environment, how we create healthier communities. I'm actually persuaded that there's power in proximity and that too often we wait until we think we have all the answers before we get closer to those who have been marginalized. I'm actually persuaded that we've got to find ways to get closer to the disfavored, the marginalized, the excluded, the poor, uh, the disabled, Even if we don't have any answers about what we're going to do when we get there, the power is in proximity. Many of us have been taught that if there's a bad part of town, oh, don't put your business there. Don't visit that part of town. Stay as far away from that segment of the community as possible. I am persuaded we need to do the opposite. We need to find ways to engage and invest and position ourselves in the places where there is despair.
1: There's a power in proximity. Just after those remarks, Stevenson tells the story of being a young boy and receiving big hugs from his grandmother, hugs that were so big that she squeezed him so hard that they hurt. And then a little while later, his grandmother would ask him whether she could still feel her hug. And if he said no, well, she would squeeze him again and give him another big hug. So Stevenson learned that when he'd show up at his grandmother's house, the first thing he wanted to tell her was that he could still feel her squeezing him. And so at the end of her life, as his grandmother lay dying, Stevenson was there, and she turned to him and said, Brian, do you feel me hugging you? I will always be hugging you. And these hugs communicated to Brian Stevenson who he was and whose he was, his family identity. He came from a place of safety and love. And he received the blessing of being loved unconditionally. He came to know to whom he belonged. So he grew up, went to college, went on to Harvard Law School, and intended to have a lucrative career. Yet as he was proximate, inmates who'd been unjustly imprisoned, proximate to the vulnerable, heard their stories. The trajectory of his life was changed, and he came to found the Equal Justice Initiative, which is committed to ending mass incarceration and excessive punishment, challenging racial and economic injustice, and protecting basic human rights for the most vulnerable people in American society. You see, we are blessed to be a blessing. Blessings are not about us. Instead, blessings are about God and God's work in the world. God is a God of blessings. By virtue of God's choosing to be in relationship with every one of us, God blesses us. And with this gift comes a task. The task is for us to be present with others. You can start small both in seeking to practice some spiritual disciplines and receive God's blessings, and in taking steps to be proximate to the poor and vulnerable in our city. But do start. Do do something. And as you do, know that the presence of Jesus Christ goes before you and is with you. Jesus wants to bless you with his presence. Jesus wants to bless others through you with your presence. Will you sit with Jesus? Will you be proximate to the poor and the vulnerable? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would know your presence with us and that we would follow your lead and go to be present with those whom you bless, the poor and the vulnerable in our society. Give us eyes to see and feet to walk, and hands to serve. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.